seekers. Uh, today I have uh, another special treat for, for the audience. I, I brought uh, a special guest who's been on the show before, uh, my old professor and mentor, uh, Paul Bali. Welcome back to the show, Paul. Thanks, Dale. Excellent. And um, the last time we, we had you on, we were speaking about um, communications from higher powers and, you know, how, how does one identify that or what, what are the uh, quote unquote higher powers that might be there and that sort of thing. Um, now, we're, we have a different topic for today, but just before I get into that, um, one major criticism I was getting as a host uh, on that show is I usually sort of let my guests introduce themselves so it, it, it allows the audience to kind of ground like where where is the guest coming from and I forgot to do that with you the last time. So oh, is that right? Oh, uh, well, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I just assume people knew you from the, the Ask an Atheist Anything uh, podcast that we did prior. Oh, to, so Yeah. Um, but yeah, we do, we do have uh, new people in the audience that may not know who you are. So, so maybe just introduce us as to who you are. Give us a bit about your quote-unquote faith journey. Like what, what do you believe? Where, where are you coming from on that front there? Oh, yeah. Well, um, I, th I, th I think, you know, uh, the audience will get a sense maybe of my faith journey as we get into this topic. I think, um, yeah, I, uh, it'll be hard for me to separate my own personal um, experience and perspective from this scholarly topic um but uh but i'm 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 your old prof that's that's the uh, <laughs> uh, biographical fact number one right uh, um dale you took a, your first course with me would it have been two summers ago now I, I i don't have a good sense of the time it feels like it was about a couple years ago now maybe a year and a half or two years ago yeah it was summer yeah. summer 2019 okay oh that that recent day eh? just what just one year ago yeah, yeah. wow <laughs> really oh well it feels like i've known you longer than that well lots happened in in a year um and uh yeah i've i've you know i've been uh, a a contract teacher at at ryerson university here in Ch toronto um for quite a while now 15 years or so and uh uh you know in the academic world my i'm in philosophy but i've always found found a way to do sort of philosophical theology in these uh, philosophy departments where phil religion even a very analytic sort is often a minority pursuit but um going all the way back to my graduate work i found a way to focus on sort of the experiential side of religion and um the social psychological side of it not that I don't enjoy a good analytic uh, throwdown, but <laughs> and of course we all want to, in some sense, be analytic. We all want to be clear and infer correctly. Uh, but I, I like to get sometimes into the messy, inescapably vague stuff we were talking about before you hit record. Right? The as you said, reality's messy. So um, sometimes you got to track that with with messy language. I think today it will get a little bit messy. But um, hopefully we can make some sense of this interesting topic you've chosen. Um, that's about it. I, you know, um, yeah. What, what about? Uh, does the audience know about your uh, your big move coming up? Uh, they, yeah, the well, the SNS audience would know about it. But um, yeah, so it's, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm Paul's referring to the fact that I, I was accepted to the Masters of Philosophy program, uh, and I'll be starting that up uh, this fall. So yeah, I'm really excited uh, about that to 
stretch my wings, so to speak, and, and uh, see what I can do in an, in an actual academic setting as opposed to just on, on podcasts or in my private <laughs> time. <laughs> um, yeah, no, you'll, you'll do great. You, uh, you'll thrive there. So um, excellent. They're, they're lucky to have you. Uh, hopefully it won't hopefully things won't get too messy but uh a little bit of mess is is good uh, yeah <laughs> all right so 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 yeah paul sort of hinted so so what is the topic that we're going to be speaking about today and um i wanted to pick something that um paul paul hasn't spoken on before but i know from from taking his class he he has a lot of interesting things to say and that's okay the the phenomenon of religion how do we explain that? What what are some of the explanations for this quote unquote religious phenomenon that that we have, and and why people believe in religions and that sort of thing? So, um, I think on that front, the the first thing to do is to turn it straight away to you and, and give some kind of definitions. You know, okay, well in the first place, if we're trying to explain religion, what what do we mean by religion? What is <laughs> And, uh, and the mess begins. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, you know, usually uh, when I teach a Phil religion type course, it, it is it is a question you, you got to raise probably on day one. You know, what are we talking about here? The, the, the word religion is in the title of the course usually, and you've got to define the course and its mandate. Um, I, I tend to answer it with evasion and uh, negation and uh, a promissory note that uh, it will be answered along the way or we'll, we'll, we'll start to delineate an answer as we get through the course and maybe um, I'll, uh, I'll do the same for today's conversation. Let's say, you know, it's, 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 it's one of those things you're tempted to say, well, we kind of all know roughly what we're talking about when we say religion. Of course, as soon as you propose a particular definition, you will always find exceptions to it. I think it's a, it's a intrinsically vague concept and you can't, you can't put firm boundaries around it. Um, so there will always be borderline cases. I think relevant to some of what we'll be getting into today you think about religion as 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 our orientation towards something transcendent something beyond us um something sort of next level that we we because because of the vast gap between us and that thing we're we're in a relationship with um uh, we'll need a special language for it we'll need special rituals for it um We'll need a special way of approaching it and um, depicting it. And um, this thing, this transcendent thing, which means it's beyond us, it's next level, is is usually, though, though not always, it's usually connected to the origin of our world itself. So you can think of the creator God and in the Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition. That's a very, very direct, very literal kind of understanding of the transcendent or God being the the origin or creator of our our world uh, but some some version of that relationship that when, when we connect to this transcendent thing we're also conne- we're not connecting to something that just happens to be on the next level we're connecting to something which also is somehow what generates our our level you know if you think of the the simulation host metaphor um, uh, if you're in the simulation 
and you try to enter into some kind of relationship, not just with the cohabitants of your simulation, but you try to reach out to the host or the creator or the programmer of the simulation itself. That would be analogous to what we're doing in religion, right, as creatures on Earth. And, uh, of course, the simulator, the programmer, the host is also the creator of your your world. So that tr- the, the, the simulator, this is a metaphor we're talking about, right, for the, the creaturely divine relationship. Um, religion would be, you know, it's a bit of a catch-all term for all the ways we negotiate that divide. It's a cultural phenomenon. Um, I mean, it's very personal too, but on, on the cultural scale, you could say religion is the cultural organization of that relationship, of that orientation between creature and creator or um, between these two levels. Of course, the question today is whether there really is a second level, right? So, um, but the but the definition I'm kind of offering here doesn't presuppose the second level is real. It's 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 like you you could have a relationship with ghosts even if ghosts aren't real. The relationship would be um, you, your orientation towards this thing you take to be real and how it affects your life and the way you might organize your life around this belief. Um, and uh, same with religion. It's there's no debate that religion is real. <laughs> religion is true in that sense. It's it's an un, undisputable fact. The question is whether religion is referring to anything uh, real on its own terms. And um, you know that's that's today's question. Interesting. Okay. So so yeah, I think I think you would definitely to summarize your views. There are certain things that clearly belong in the quote-unquote religion category but there is we have it's important to recognize that there is there isn't this clear boundary uh there's kind of a diffuseness um where there might be some some gray zones in that you you can't categorize everything but there are definitely some clear things in your view that yes this is in the religious category yeah 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 all right all right well i did have a follow-up here I, i wanted to just sort of give them my understanding and it, it's sort of similar to to what you were saying with you know the transcendence and that sort of thing but i i sort of look as a, a quote-unquote religion is there there are a set of authoritative teachings um relating to the nature of ultimate reality um you know whether that's god or whatever as well as relating specifically to human the ultimate purpose of human beings um, within creation or within this reality, whatever it is. Um, so that's sort of my, those two elements are sort of how I look at defining religion and, and distinguishing it from, you know, things like Marxism or Confucianism. I, I would say that's not a religion. Um, yeah, I, I think you sort of hinted at the first aspect. What do you make of the, the second aspect, you know, relating to the ultimate purpose for human beings and, and how to achieve that? that would fit in the religious category yeah that seems to be in the right neighborhood i don't i don't think i would take issue with that i um yeah we're talking about ultimate things uh typically in religion um and uh if 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 religion is connecting us to this source of our existence then it, it would it would seem to be the most important thing to get right about you know that 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 relationship will be the most important relationship 
and that our um, our fulfillment as creatures will depend on on getting getting that relationship right. Um, that that does seem right. Uh, you know, right away, all these exceptions, possible exceptions, start flooding my head. I was thinking about the earlier part of your definition too, that it concerns specifically a set of teachings. On the one hand, I, I wouldn't really take issue with that. But you know, this this term teachings is a little bit vague. And maybe that's good. Maybe it should be a little bit vague. I would just point out to you that when you define religion as a set of teachings of some kind, I do think you know you're showing your colors as a scholar there. That is, you you are a person living the life of the mind, and for you, the teachings, the propositions, the beliefs, are are so central to religious life, um, and having the correct propositions about this ultimate reality is so central to your mission as a kind of jana yogi, I would say, that you're defining religion itself as as a set of teachings i'm i would you know and i probably would have done the same maybe 15 or 20 years ago i'm not saying i've improved on you i just my, my sense is just is is now just well that's a pretty scholarly uh take on religion right to reduce it to a set of propositions or doctrines and there's so much more i don't think the beliefs are quite as central for everybody um not that they'll ever be irrelevant. Humans have minds, and uh, <laughs> any uh, proper religion will um, have something to do with getting the mind correctly oriented to that reality, that ultimate reality. But but uh, there are other ways of correctly orienting yourself with that reality than having the correct propositions. Right. So you could talk about the correct form of behavior. It, there, there might be people who are just acting with the right they're just moving in the right way now because they're in harmony with that ultimate reality they move with grace we, we, we use terms like that and that could be at least as important as having the correct beliefs so there might be very graceful people who 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 have a kind of harmonious graceful relationship with that ultimate reality and but if you ask them for uh, a clear statement of propositions about the nature of this ultimate reality and our relationship with it they might get a little bit tongue-tied and maybe they haven't even thought very clearly about it in the way that you have and i would hesitate to say that they're not yet religious because they haven't engaged you know um with that belief side anyway that's just a bit of that's... a quibble but of, of course we're gonna we could quibble all day about the definitional i'm glad you know, so yeah, I, I think that I'm glad that you brought that up because you're absolutely right, uh, and that was something I just kind of it kind of betrays. Yeah, I've, I've got my bias uh, in terms of that, but yeah, re religion is doings and practices and that sort of mm -hmm. thing. So I, yeah, I think you're right. I, I would need to work on modifying my definition there. So yeah, thank thank you for bringing that up. That was that was great. Oh no, uh, well it's it's a action is a nice broad category, right? So you might. Yeah, you might say religion is about acting, acting in accordance with that um, ultimate reality. And then, of course, belief is a kind of action, right? Believing is a kind of doing. That's a very abstract <laughs> mental doing. But, um, you know, you're doing something when you believe 
correctly and when you get your beliefs in line with the ultimate reality. So, yeah, maybe some kind of action is the preferable broader category for the definition at the outset. Gotcha. Perfect. Okay. Um, and just uh, very quickly, this this um, may seem like a, a stupid question uh, to some in the audience, but okay, so w what do you mean by an explanation? Um, oh, God, exactly? yeah. That's, uh, hmm. I don't know. What what would you, how would you define it? Um, well, so I was thinking, so number one, you could look at it, okay, well, what is the origins of the religion historically? Um, you know, how did the phenomenon of religious, religious, um, or religions get started in the first place? Or we could have a, a wider look, like explaining all religious phenomena, past, present, uh, and future in terms of its development. Oh. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, I get you. I thought you were asking um, for some broad, um, almost metaphilosophical definition of explanation. <laughs> I, oh, no. I got a bit tongue-tied. Okay, so you're, you're asking them um, uh, the more specific question of what is it we're trying to explain today when we talk about explaining religion? I, I, I mean, yeah, I, uh, I, I haven't thought um, really carefully before about this distinction you make between explaining the historical origins of religion, which assumedly go back uh, i don't know thousands tens of thousands of years in, in human history but um um and and explaining all of its subsequent manifestations i guess the dream would be that if you explain the origins right you've probably captured most of its subsequent manifestations that in other words we haven't changed that much <laughs> yeah. that that uh, and i th yeah i think uh, yeah yeah, we'll see today as we get into specific examples. Some of them do seem to be focused on the historical origins and um, seem to imply that once you've got that, you've you've pretty much understood the phenomenon. Uh, but um, yeah. Cool. All right. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I think at, at this point, um, let's stop beating around the bush. Let, let's get into <laughs> what are some of the, these explanations. And um, when when you taught us in, in class, um, you know, you sort of broke it up into two major categories. There's there's first of all this the religious, the traditional religious or, or supernatural type explanation versus the naturalistic uh, or natural explanations. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll turn it to you. Do you, you want to maybe just sort of in a general terms uh, explain the difference between those two types and uh, focus in on specifically the religious or supernatural type explanation. You know, what what is that explanation? What does it typically entail in your view? Yeah. Well, religion exists. Religion has happened. And no one is debating that. The question is, how did it happen? And what is it? What explains it? And yeah, it's, it seems pretty, pretty useful to distinguish broadly between these two general answers. On the one hand, you've got this Re religious explanation of religion that's the explanation of christianity that a christian would tend to recognize and accept or the explanation of islam that a muslim would tend to accept which is is that religion is the result of contact between humanity and the divine right and and it's messy maybe and you might say well not all religion is the result of a clear contact between humanity and the divine some of its false religions some of its trickle down revelation etc cetera, etc cetera. but the general answer is 
religion enters our world as this cultural phenomenon because humanity at some point has made revelatory contact with the divine so when man meets god religion happens that's that's the religious answer classic religious answer and then the, the you know the non-religious answer the natural sometimes they're called naturalistic explanations of religion these are attempts to explain everything that happens on the ground in religion in social psychological reality um without referring to or assuming uh any kind of supernatural or transcendent being right so the the game or the the challenge in the naturalistic explanation of religion is to explain religion maybe in its historical origins how it happened it's it's quite a phenomenon it's something very interesting that's happened to this particular particular creature on earth um and see if you can explain that staying completely within the natural world um now chances are you're not going to be explaining religion using newtonian physics usually it's it's um going up a couple levels actually most of these naturalistic explanations of religion operate at the social and psychological level right the social sciences um so they try to reduce religious behavior and phenomena to um natural social psychological phenomena but increasingly after darwin we see some attempts to not completely reduce religion but um um explain many religious phenomena using darwinian principles um yeah so that's that's the distinction was that was that pretty clear okay so at this point before we're, we're going to look in in uh some of these various types of explanations in, in more detail but i, I first want to focus on the re traditional religious or supernatural type explanation so um in your view are there different types uh, of explanations even within the religious category so i you know, I know that you kind of yeah uh i'll, I'll put that to you because you know things that apply to Christianity may be different to religious explanations of Hinduism, for example. So, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. What are your thoughts there? I, uh, I would suspect that the differences between the Christian account of the origins of Christianity and the Hindu account of the origins of Hinduism might not be that great. The differences wouldn't be that great i suspect though and i'm just you know it's based on very scanty knowledge of uh if i if i may generalize sure. certainly certainly over generalize tribal scale religion which is probably for, for the most of our history religion was a tribal scale phenomenon we, we lived at the tribal scale in bands of a few dozen people maybe many of them related to us biologically and um I, I i'm 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 guessing there there are some commonalities across across the different tribal religions partly just because of that scale but um i suspect there there might be some some profound differences i mean the whole notion of the supernatural and the transcendent i just wonder how recent these categories are it seems to me that the, the very idea of the supernatural is one that um becomes especially marked as 
uh, culture attains a very distinct sense of the natural, you know, the natural as this as this orderly system of principles guiding the behavior of natural phenomena. Once you've got a very vivid sense of that and you start to delineate some of the particular deep laws, then you've got at least conceptually this possible counter note to it, which is the idea of the supernatural, something beyond that entire system. I don't know if that that duality operates so strongly in a lot of the tribal religions. Whereas, as I said, the difference between the, the Christian and the Hindu account of religion might not actually be that different, as, as different as they can seem when we're really zoomed in on civilizational religion. They, they both would, would, I think, say that their religion is the result of an encounter between humans and the supernatural, the divine. And the divine is certainly something which has purchase outside of the natural world. And it comes to us through what we'd call revelation and often through um, filtered through uh, special humans, whether prophets or sages or rishis who've heard the sacred word and then brought it down from the mountains and spread it to their civilization. Um, so, uh, yeah, there, there will certainly be differences when you go from religion to religion. You know, when you ask them for their particular account of, of how it all happened. Um, but something like our some some modification of our original definition, I think, would still would still apply. Right. They're going to talk about religion being a set of practices that are, are their response to this contact they've made between the human and something quite, quite other. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. So, yeah, my my understanding. So, I, one follow up question for for you because I'm a little confused on something you said. So, in terms of the Christian and, and versus Hindu or Buddhist, um, the specifics don't don't matter. I think that would sort of fit into your original definition in that, in one form or another, maybe we differ on the specifics uh, form. But in one way or another, humans gain access to a transcendent realm and gain knowledge about that transcendent realm um you, you mentioned that might be different for like aboriginal religions or anim animistic religions um did i understand you correctly like you think sort of the supernatural explanations of their religion are intertwined with the natural world like they don't have a concept of the, the transcendent in a way or I, I you know i i again my knowledge is so scanty but but uh yeah it, it i mean it might be that um you ever hear this this theory of Carl Jaspers, the Axial Age and Axial Age religion? Carl Jaspers, uh, I guess he was a was he was he a Swiss or German theologian, psychologist, and he he talked about the Axial Age, which would have been about twenty five hundred years ago, where we get these great figures like Siddhartha Gautama in North India and Socrates in Greece, and this shift um, okay. to a very kind of self-conscious form of humanity. And then I think of the Julian Jaynes view of the shift from bicameral to regular religion, not that we need to go through a summary of that for this show, but Julian Jaynes, this American psychologist, had a view that religion about 3,000 years ago and, and older was quite, quite different from what it is today. And in his view, the, the whole idea you know that we are in some kind of fallen state and separate from the from 
the transcendent or the creator. Actually, calling it the transcendent is reflective of that feeling that we are fallen from it and separated from it. That whole idea, which we, we tend to associate with religion itself, that might be, you know, a recent, so to speak, uh, development. Now, if you go back far enough, and maybe this will take us back into some some examples of the tribal scale of religion, um, there's not this marked sense that we've been separated from this reality. And religion isn't isn't hyper-focused and obsessed with getting us back to that state of unity or harmony with our creator, that there's a, a sense that all of life is suffused with that relationship. And re religion in that in that tribal scale then might be conservative in the sense that its its aim is not to radically disrupt your form of life and have you break with house and home and <laughs> have war within families to follow Jesus. It's 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 conservative in the sense of just maintaining a relationship which is already existent and already good and which suffuses all of your life. So you know the idea. Of, I just, I'm just. I'm not sure how to how to divide neatly between the tribal and the civilizational, but it does seem sensible. There will be some important distinctions there, and this this might be one of them, right? That in civilization we're quite alienated from the divine, most of us, and um, and religion is the set of techniques to get us back into a relationship with it, and uh, um, it not, wasn't necessarily always like that. Um, so. Um, in that case, yeah, the transcendent might be a particularly civilizational way of talking about this thing. Gotcha. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So, uh, yeah, believe it or not, one of the, the questions that you requested is um, Julian James' uh, bicameral hypothesis. Oh, yeah, we are going to talk about that. That's right. That's I mean, that's a great classic example of an attempt to explain the origins of... Actually, he was trying to explain the origins of self-awareness or something like that but yeah. ended up with this happy byproduct of a total explanation of re religion in his view i think yeah so, yeah i'll actually turn it to you we, we can get into that right away actually I, I'll, I'll give it to you to sort of explain what that is um but I, also this this notion of like a, a former time when things were better this ideal state it, it kind of reminds me as a christian of like oh thinking back to adam and eve and the pre pre the fall and in, in the garden of Eden and that sort of thing. But yeah, before we get into that, what, what is, okay, maybe explain some details. Uh, what, what is this bicameral hypothesis that Julian James is and how does it explain the religious phenomenon and that sort of thing? Yeah. Um, so J Julian James had this view that, Around 3,000 years ago, there was a profound shift in human mental life. And uh, the, the basic story is that um, 3,000 years ago and, and older, we weren't self-aware in the way we take for granted now. I mean, now we all, all have this kind of Hamlet-like internal voice that accompanies, accompanies us through life. Sometimes we call it the voice of conscience when it's guiding us um, on the moral path. But it's often just this kind of, I think Don DeLillo called it in Underworld, the dusty hum of who we are. It's this kind of inner voice, which is usually our own. It sounds a little bit like our own 
voice that other people hear in, in social communication, but it's our own little internal secret friend and it talks, literally speaks language to us and guides us. Often, and, and James takes this to be quite an important piece of data, notice that this voice in your head often becomes louder or more insistent when you're in stressful situations. And for James, that that's evidence that its original function was to guide us through stressful decision-making nodes in in the journey of life. So his his view is that 3,000 years, he called it, call it the bicameral age. Bicameral just means two chambers. And in his view, our mind was sort of schizophrenic 3,000 years ago in old earth, this in, in the bicameral age. Um, and we didn't have this intimate voice that spoke to us in our own voice. Rather, what we had were these sort of schizophrenic audio hallucinations, which were taken to be the voices of gods or departed respected ancestors or great heroes or kings. And they would act as sort of the voice of conscience or the voice of um, stress resolution. And, uh, you know, James, it, I mean, part of what's interesting about James's account is, is the evidence uh, maybe selectively gathered I, I i can't say but uh, he points to a lot of phenomena that we're kind of familiar with from cultural history and then asks us to see it in the new light of his theory so the fact that in the iliad the ancient greek epic the account of the trojan war he points out that the characters in the iliad this huge epic poem they never sit down and think about what to do <laughs> that that whenever they re reach a stressful decision point um, they hallucinate. James, he was a psych psychologist whose specialty was schizophrenia, which started, really got him thinking about this. And I mean, I, I guess a really provocative way maybe of stating his view is that 3000 years ago and older, our entire species was schizophrenic. We heard voices and, but, the, but, but it wasn't pathological. It wasn't dysfunctional. When you've got a whole culture which is organized religiously around the reception of these voices and their identification and categorization, categorization, and you're taught to respect them. And in fact, when you live in a relatively stable culture, these voices can offer wise advice. The voices in James's view are nothing more than the subconscious codification of your culture's own principles of wise action right and today that voice comes out to us in our own voice um but in the bicameral era it would come out as the voice of obi-wan kenobi or whatever just hovering around your head when you're deciding whether to fight darth vader or not and um uh so i mean that's that's the james bicameral hypothesis and you know, I, I guess he started out in his own account just to explain how weird the ancient world was, how how weird ancient psychology seemed to be from the evidence given to us in works like the Iliad. But he ended up as as, as a kind of byproduct of this bicameral theory with, a, with an account of the origins of religion as we know it. I guess re religion in the bicameral era would have been, um, would have been just the cultural organization of these schizophrenic hallucinations. So the gods would be the sort of fixed images of the sources of these voices we'd receive daily. And um, then religion after the bicameral era would be 
our attempt to return sort of with nostalgic anguish, our attempt to return to that Edenic life when the gods walked with us and spoke to us quite intimately, right? So post bicameral religion, which is what we're in now, and even what we identify as the very old religions like Judaism and Hinduism, these are largely post bicameral phenomena, meaning they are attempts to get us back to that intimacy that spoken intimacy with uh, these guides, with these gods. It's interesting. Um, I, I found this hypothesis interesting. So, so number one, in the first place, for, for um, you know, atheists and, and skeptics uh, that aren't familiar with this, so they actually see schizophrenia. The vast majority of um, uh, human beings, three thousand years ago, and again, it, it doesn't have to be at that boundary. You can push it back if if that's problematic historically or something like that. But he would say the majority of people are schizophrenic, and this is the this was seen as sort of the ideal state, uh, kind of like a Garden of Eden type state where you know God's uh, directly told you reach a certain stress threshold uh, on a decision or something like that. God's voice literally tells you to do this. Okay, you you just do it. Um, and later, really, like in the biblical period with prophets and that sort of thing, you're that's kind of like a longing to you know I, I want to have that same old relationship I had with God. Um, yeah. And so you come up with various mechanisms, you know, like the prof prophetic oracles or or you know ast astrology or or you know the various mechanisms that people would do picking up uh, flipping a coin stuff like that but um these are kind of like remnants left over so yeah obviously as, as a christian um i don't believe this is this is true but there are some interesting similarities there um and things to think about um in terms of an explanation there so yeah i think we'll uh you know i, I can understand why as 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 a christian you would see this view as being um, inconsistent with your your view, but I, I think we'll find with a lot of these naturalistic explanations of religion, they they don't function as sort of deductive proofs of atheism in any sense. And in fact, strictly speaking, most of them are quite consistent with our religious worldview. This is I think this is an important point to stress and clarify from the outset that. There, there's a way of telling the Julian James bicameral story, which makes it consistent probably with Christian history, right? There's a way of doing, we'll talk about Feuerbachian projection theory in a moment, I'm sure. There's yeah. a way of, of telling that story and making it consistent with some version of theism. Now, that doesn't mean that Feuerbach or Julian James themselves um, were believers, and they probably saw their views as being somewhat destructive to traditional theological belief. But, but strictly speaking, you can believe in the reality of God, say, and also believe that these social psychological complexities are in play. It's, it's, you know, it's analogous to, I'm sure a lot of your audience have thought through this, and I'm sure you've talked about it, how there's maybe a way of making Darwinian evolution quite consistent with um, um, some version of creationism, right? Where evolution becomes the on-the-ground mechanism through which God enacts his creative uh, uh, plan. Whether that's correct or not is is a second question, but in, you can see in principle that's 
logically consistent, perhaps. And uh, similarly here, right, it might be that there is a God and God has made contact with us, but in the initial contact, there's confusion. Or in the initial contact, we do receive it in this sort of bicameral way. And then we start to internalize the voice of God and the voice of God sort of incarnates into our own into our own speech patterns. Um, so, um, but I'm curious to hear more about why you think it's strictly inconsistent with the uh, Christian account. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's, it would be. So I, I think you're absolutely right. And um, yeah, we, we actually just had uh, Michael B. He on. on um, oh right, yeah. He takes exactly the. He's a con, uh, committed Roman Catholic. He takes exactly the same view in terms of, hey, I'm I'm open to uh, certain things in evolution. It's you know he debates the, the mechanisms of being capable without some sort of intelligent design input, being able to create biological diversity, but he's open to, yeah, we, we evolved from a common ancestor and that sort of thing. So yeah. there are ways, that's an important point that you raise, that yeah, things can be uh, par partial explanations and can be, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, I think when it comes to specific explanations, it would more be at the level of, okay, well, divine revelation and how you read history that that's supposedly revealed and that would it so it would depend on what your specific religion teach and that sort of thing but yeah i i would say i, I think that biblical history would kind of contradict the bicameral hypothesis and on that basis i would say that's not true do like do you well i guess I mean, J James does spend some time looking at the books of the Old Testament. He re reflects on the difference between the the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament too. But um, he he notes that some of the historically older Jewish prophets seem a little more bicameral in the in their um, in their relationship with God. And then by the time you get to uh, prophet i'm not even sure prophet's the right word um the wisdom writer ecclesiastes you're seeing this more reflective self-consciousness um and so in in the what he took to be the i'm not sure of the current dating of the the various prophetic books but when james was writing in the 60s and 70s i think historians were taking amos to be one of the historically oldest prophets and if you look at a, a book like Amos, the prophet Amos, he's speaking in sort of this very typical bicameral way. He's he's just this kind of radio of receptivity to the divine voice. And, and what he's saying is really just, he's just quoting Yahweh. Yahweh says, here. And uh, he's, he's just passing on Yahweh's voice. And uh, by the time you get to Ecclesiastes, you've got this very reflective self-consciousness. And... Um, that, that's, that picture, that development, I think you could fit into a, a, a orthodox theological view, right? It could be that the way we receive the divine voice changes through the centuries that we grow and uh, we start to internalize the voice as we become more mature, or as we become more distant from it. I don't know. Uh, there are different stories you could tell, but I don't see that outright inconsistency i mean my, my own i mean to show some of my cards I, I i do think that you know um 
after decades of thinking about religion and experiencing it, I, I do think my, my general story of religion on earth is, yeah, there's been contact between humanity and something pretty far outside of our ordinary notions of what it is to be human. Something so different, you may as well call it transcendent. And you may as well start to think about it as connected to the source of all reality and everything you know and everything that you're aimed at. Uh, but I, I tend to also think maybe excessively liberally that almost all of these explanations we'll talk about today are partly true, you know, at least as partial explanations. I mean, like the Marxist interpretation of religion, that religion, you know, big R, institutional religion, has this social political function to keep in place class divisions. And it's just so obviously correct in some spheres of explanation, just so obviously part of what's going on in the human religious story. And, you know, James is, he's on to something, like we don't want to dismiss him too quickly. He's clearly identified this phenomenon that cries out for explanation, this change in voice. In, in human communication. Again, whether we date it to 3,000 years ago or 3,500 years ago, or whether the 3,000 dating is works really good for Mesopotamia and, and surrounding environs and not so good for the subcontinent or for, you know, uh, the Americas, I don't know. But, uh, but um, um, something seems to have changed. And uh, that change isn't necessarily only explainable in sort of atheistic terms. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I think that's, um, that's definitely what I was trying to, to get at. So you see it as sort of, uh, all of these things could be partially, uh, and partially true and mutually consistent. So it's, don't be so hasty, I guess, is your message in just saying, oh, well, this, this obviously can't be true. And it, it's an automatic contradiction. Maybe there are ways to, uh, think about incorporating them and stuff. That's that will be your sort of position there. Yeah, um, that's right. You just gotta gotta avoid the uh, reductivist or totalizing tendency in each of these theories. So, you know, if 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 the Marxist theory is, I don't think it's saying this, but if it's saying this is the fundamental explanation of religion in human history, and this is all religion is, <laughs> that that won't be consistent with a theological picture, and that won't be consistent with you know, many other naturalist explanations of religion. But if you dial back from that reductivism and from that generalization and, you know, talk about it being a partial explanation of a good chunk of the phenomena we observe in human history, then then you can start to make it consistent. Then you can start to think of a toolbox of explanations of religion, right? And you can think of the appropriate tool for each circumstance. So if we want to talk and and under just different angles to get on different phenomena, right? So clearly one very um, um, inst instructive um, way to talk about the medieval ritual of the Pope anointing and crowning the king is is the Marxist way, right? To understand that here state religion is showing its approval using this kind of divine um, mediator of the current class order of the current system of secular power. <laughs> and, 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 and yeah, it, it would be, you know, you're, you're missing something. If you're observing that medieval anointing ritual of Charlemagne or whatever, and you're not seeing that there's a kind of Marxist angle on this, that's appropriate. But uh, but as soon as you say that's all this is, then I think you're making a mistake and you're becoming a doctrinaire Marxist and you're missing a lot a lot else of what's going on. 
Yeah, it's uh, like I, I don't know. It, it's up to you. Would, would you want me? There is something specific that I'm thinking of, and I'm, I'm trying to generalize it. But for for me, there's there's an issue. So if the bicameral hypothesis is true, there is the issue of okay, the image of God, human beings as, as image bearers. Um, I know this is kind of Christian centric, so if, if you don't want to answer, that's fine. But um, how does that? How would that sort of fit with a bicameral hypothesis? Are are the people prior to that truly human? Like, do, they don't seem to. Do they have the? If you don't have the powers of self consciousness and reflection, are you really a, an image bearer of God? That um, yeah. It's, would you would you want to speak to that, or is that too specific? No, that's uh, no, that's. Um... It's a good question, and and I don't think it has to be specifically Christian, right? It's a good question about what it is to be religious and human. I uh, I guess I guess though I wouldn't so strongly identify the religious with self consciousness in particular. I think I think religion being the connection of the creature to the transcendent or the creator. Um, can manifest in many different ways. There are many ways of living and acting in harmony with that thing. And s there can be de degrees of self-awareness of that relationship in the creature. And they don't all have to be explicit. And I'm even willing to think of forms of religiosity that aren't, aren't even particularly self-aware. Self-awareness is a really interesting, powerful thing. And I would want God to have it. <laughs> you know, I'd want the ultimate creature to have it. And I'd like to think that as we move forward and up in knowledge, um, we gain that among other things. I mean, if, you, if you're going to be omniscient, one very important thing you've got to know is your own self and you've got to be reflectively aware of that thing. But I, I wouldn't make that definitional of religiosity. So that may be one difference in our approach. And um, uh, But also, I mean, even if you want to make it sort of definitional of religion, I guess you could say that in the Judeo-Christian progress, I don't mean necessarily from Judaism to Christianity, I just mean assuming there's been some development of the relationship between humanity and the creator, it could be that, that we, get, we get better at that relationship, you know, um, in that some of Yahweh's frustration with early attempts to connect <laughs> after Eden are reflective of this, that we're, we're, we're still growing, we're immature. And part of what we need to have a mature relationship with Yahweh is maybe some self-reflectiveness. But I, I wouldn't say that that creates some deep inconsistency with the Christian account, right? All right. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that, that was good to, to get that in there, just to see how people can maybe think about they're mutually consistent versus mutually exclusive. Um, at this point, I, I do want. So you mentioned Fairbach. Uh, this this was another guy uh, that I know people in my audience are well familiar with. I, I hear it all the time in the comment boards. Uh, oh yeah. From our good friend Tara. This is her chosen explanation. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. But but yeah. So so Ludwig Fairbach had this naturalistic explanation known as anthropomorphic projection. Um, so, you know, it's 
turn it to you. What what the heck is this? Uh, what what is this explanation? And and yeah, can you give us sort of an explanation as to what it is first? Yeah, you know it it's. Uh, I mean, his original view maybe isn't terribly different from James's view. I mean, there's a lot of commonality there. His original view, which he uh, published in a work called The Essence of Christianity. This would have been around, oh, uh, somewhere around 1850, you know, mid, mid 1800s. His, his view there was that, yeah, self-awareness is a very difficult thing and it's, it's a recent achievement. It's, it's something maybe humans have in a strong dose and you don't find it in, with quite that explicitness or intensity. Um, elsewhere in the animal kingdom and it may also i mean that may be a sign that it's also something kind of recent that it's an achievement and um for Feuerbach, there are these stages on the way to full self reflectivity and religion is 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 one of the major i mean his view is that religion arises as as a major kind of lever that gets us to explicit self-awareness and i think his view then was that once we actually attain direct self-awareness which is what we have now religion will kind of fall by the wayside that it was a ladder to get us to self-awareness and the projection part of his theory which is so influential is that when we talk about the gods we're really talking about ourselves and we now sense that we now sense that and that's part of what makes us uncomfortable with our religiosity he would say and makes religiosity seem sort of an ill fit with modern consciousness but way back and i don't know if feuerbach gives quite the explicit timeline that james does but further back in history when we talked about the gods we were groping towards talking about ourselves and it's so but it's so hard to talk about yourself and to think about yourself in a direct way this is the achievement of self-awareness that we do it initially in this kind of babyish way. We we project our own nature onto the empty canvas of the cosmos and we talk about that thing. So I guess Feuerbach's view would be that when the Greeks are telling stories about, um, you know, what the Olympians are up to, they're really doing a kind of sociology. You know, they're talking about human relations and gaining some sociological insight into human relations. Um, and when we talk, when we praise God, we're actually gaining self-awareness of what we are. Feuerbach's key distinction, though, is that, I mean, clearly when we talk about God, we infinitize human qualities. So God, it's like a funhouse mirror where we're looking at ourselves, but blown up mm-hmm. to infinity. By the time you get to Thomistic theology, we're blowing this thing up li- literally explicitly to the infinite. But it wasn't always like that. It was, I mean, early Yahweh isn't infinite, maybe. Early Yahweh is just really big and really powerful and really knowing. And um, by the time you get to Thomistic theology, it's an infinitized being. But the, the basic qualities we ascribe to the deity and that we worship in the deity are qualities that we um, recognize to distinguish ourselves and to uh, be most praiseworthy in ourselves, like uh, God's love. God's, God's capacity to move beyond the boundaries of the self and to take in other things and to his sphere of concern, God's knowledge, 
God's power, competence in in dealing with the world, nature. Of course, God's got omnicompetence in dealing with the nature. God creates it and has complete mastery over its operations. We're pretty good. We're we can we're engineering at a planetary scale now. We've got God-like powers increasingly over the natural world through our knowledge. Um, so we've got these God-like qualities, and and in religion we're kind of worshiping them. So. Uh, that's why Feuerbach, I mean, provocatively put his theory in as as the view that religion is idolatry. If you take idolatry to be the worship of the self or the worship of what is in fact not divine, typically you're you're anthropomorphizing God and putting in an ex- explicitly human or animal form and then worshiping that. And that's the sin of idolatry that you're making what's divine too creaturely and then worshiping that according to Feuerbach religion in its essence is idolatry and we just don't recognize it and it's interesting right there's there's different kinds of projection probably there's a kind of um, um, furious uh, projection that goes on when Judaism and Islam these 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 sort of um, iconoclastic religions go about smashing the idols of their neighboring tribes they're reacting we might say in modern psycho speak to a, a brewing recognition of their own religion's idolatry and so they're smashing their neighbor's idols because they're uncomfortable with the revelation it offers them the jew or muslim about their own religiosity that it's all idolatry yeah it's it's an interesting view i, I definitely think it's uh, a partial explanation i um but just uh, I guess to provide some sort of follow-up or potential challenges to these views, what what would you make of? So it, it seems like it relies a lot on psychoanalysis uh, of people who we don't know intimately, we don't know their situation, that sort of thing. And some people might kind of scoff at this and say, you know, you're you're just trying to come up with a way to dismiss my beliefs or something like that, and by psychoanalyzing me um yeah like how how might you respond if someone sort of from a religious perspective whatever that is would would push back in that way yeah i think um i don't want to say where the onus is exactly but but the religious person can best push back against feuerbach i think by pointing to specific psychological experiences that defy this picture of Feuerbach's painting, right? If, if, if religious experience, if, um, if our encounter with the divine is ultimately just an encounter with our relatively ordinary self, um, though deflected in this projective way, um, there shouldn't be examples of genuine prophecy, probably, right? There shouldn't be examples of, I mean, we should, we should, Again, the best way to push back against Feuerbach is to find phenomena um, that defy this reductivist, um, humanist account of religion. And you can see that we've always felt that pressure, right? I mean, the part of the great news of religion is, look, there is something beyond. The miracles are supposed to be the calling card of that. Prophecy is a calling card of that. It's not just us. It's not just in our head. There's something outside of us speaking to us, which knows things that we couldn't know in our ordinary human capacity and can get us to do things or do things 
through us that we could not otherwise do. So these these will always be the best <laughs> knockdown arguments against naturalist explanations of religion, right? Um, <clears throat> Interesting. Do, do you would you say so? I know that you kind of said you you don't want to necessarily place the onus anywhere, but it it kind of sounds like you're saying this is sort of the the default unless the religious proponent can can prove well here's a supernaturalistic element that i can prove this part isn't just that do you, do you think this is sort of like the default or the naturalism in general would be the default no or? no i don't i don't default to naturalism much anymore i uh no i wouldn't say that i would just say if you're in conversation with a feuerbachian and you're a theist probably the best way you can really counter them is starting to get get, get them to think about really unusual experiences i mean i know in my own my own religious life whatever naturalist tendencies i had in my more analytic 20s and early 30s i think i think a lot i, I have to say a lot of that dissipated because of extraordinary experiences and uh they really do count you know they count in the history of religion they they are uh, you know, people like special effects. Maybe, you know, we can deride that. <laughs> we can deride their uh, uh, proclivity to go watch stupid uh, summer action movies with lots of noise. And You've been um, following me to the theaters? or <laughs> What's that? I said, all right, you've been following me to the theaters and watching what I... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I just, uh, I can get cynical about... Uh, hollywood like like a lot of us but uh sure. but of course there's it's it's people people want to see signs and wonders and um you can't fault them for that and and uh that it really is excellent evidence of something beyond us you know um, so i guess Feuerbach's problem or question to, to the believer would be it's just it's just a little suspicious that so much of what falls under religious experience can be explained pretty well we can get pretty far in explaining it just thinking of some more ordinary human psychological tendencies like I, I mentioned that this is the early part of Feuerbach's theory the pure projection theory this um, movement towards explicit self-awareness this story he tells the later Feuerbach I think a decade or two later he starts thinking more about these wish fulfillment tendencies we have and starts thinking about there, there's still a projection at the heart of his theory but he, he sees this projection as being very motivated by wish fulfillment that humans as we attain a kind of self-awareness of, of our situation in the world, we, we face this very painful reality. We see that nature is this system which sometimes we're in harmony with, but just as often is opposed to our interests and crushes us in the end and seems to swallow us up unthinkingly without a thought, you know, in a crevice, <clears throat> if only the crevice of the grave in the end and this this fact is so painful to us because Feuerbach sees us as these we're this infinitizing creature who takes on this kind of infinite ambition to achieve the infinite and experience the infinite and we want i mean all creatures want some version of happiness but we want infinite happiness and so we've got this at some point in our psychological flowering we 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 we're faced with this contradiction where on the one hand we have infinite ambition for infinite happiness, something like heaven and immortality. And on the other hand, we're very aware that that's not what the world offers us. We're no longer living moment to moment. We're seeing the big picture and we're seeing where it all ends for each individual in death. Right. We're like the adolescent who becomes depressed, realizing that everyone's going to die. And and this painful contradiction demands a solution. We can't live with the contradiction. 
that the pain of that contradiction for long. Religion is the solution to that. And so religion is a way that we, I guess, we tell ourselves a happy story about what's going on and in which we tell ourselves that it turns out well that your infinite ambitions for infinite happiness will be fulfilled. That, yes, nature has power over you, but there's something you are identified with in whose image you are made that has power over nature. And so I guess the Feuerbachian would say by by but by just referring to some pretty common sense common commonly experienced psychological tendencies we can tell a pretty good story of a lot of what goes on in religious belief and maybe even religious experience right and um so there's i mean i agree with you i think Feuerbach's view is clearly true at least as a partial explanation you know, clearly a lot of what's going on in the life of the believer is something like wish fulfillment and projection and idolatry in the way he understands it. And uh, and uh, the question is whether that's a total explanation, and I, I don't think it is. Right. Well, let me, uh, the, the last sort of follow-up, kind of like probing challenge on, on this view that I wanted to ask you about is, okay, well, let, let's flip it. Um, couldn't the same thing be said about anti-religious or even even non-religious views for that matter as well like isn't this type of wishful wish fulfillment or or wishful thinking and that sort of thing anthropomorphic projection applicable to someone like richard dawkins and and his views against religions and that sort of thing yeah it's it's funny i mean in a way the ultimate anthropomorphic projection is to say there's nothing beyond the human out there <laughs> that's like it's not it's yeah it's uh, yeah, I, I i hear you and yeah once we get into the strategy of psychological explanations like motivational yeah. explanations of people's beliefs we're we're getting into sort of ad hominem territory that doesn't mean, uh, you know, there, there are uh, legitimate ad hominem arguments and illegitimate. Um, and of course, to understand religion, we've got to understand our motivations in it. But uh, yeah, we can, uh, I, I think you and I have had similar experience, maybe encountering some particularly rabid um, naturalists and atheists that clearly there's some personal motivation operating here, whether it's projection or wish fulfillment or something else we can take case by case but um yeah yeah um so again probably the best way out of that um for either side is to i don't know something more in the line of evidence and proof for the thing or disproof of the thing that's why i, I don't think you'd ever want to do the, this naturalistic explanation topic in in final isolation from all the other stuff we do in phil religion like the arguments for and against god's existence these things have to weigh in at some point too if i remember in the essence of christianity feuerbach has an extended discussion of actually maybe it's not extended maybe it's a little bit brief and dismissive of some of the traditional proofs for god's existence and uh, it's been a while since i looked at the text but i remember being not so convinced on, on him there <laughs> that that you you can't dismiss the ontological or cosmological argument or teleological argument in, in these terms. They might initially be motivating the arguer, 
But in the end, you've got the argument. You've got the premises and the inference on the page, and you've got to look at that, right? Similarly, with with religious experience, you know, like really intense mystical level experiences. I'm not sure Feuerbach was so convincing about that. That is, if you accept something in the neighborhood of wish fulfillment theory, um, yeah, we 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 do often experience wish fulfillment phenomena, right? And and you you see it in operation in ordinary belief formation all the time if you take a close look at um, human mental life but when you get into these very vivid quasi perceptual experiences i don't know is is the Feuer, does the, does the feuerbachian have to say wish fulfillment is so powerful that it causes us to hallucinate i guess i guess they'd have to say something like that um, i'm just not sure i'm comfortable reducing to wish fulfillment hallucinations the profound experiences of the vedantists and the you know the, the medieval um monastics and and so on you know there's something a lot more profound to me going on there and um yeah yeah i agree i i do i like what you said uh, in terms of that answer um you know look at the end of the day look there there are objective arguments and evidences uh whether they're convincing or not so that's that's what one needs to base it on um i i, I kind of brought up that objection I, i'm not going to name any names but one of our professors uh that that taught me and he's a, a great professor as well i, I like him uh no names because I, I don't want uh you know tara to to email anyone or, or bug people um but um, he kind of brought up this against Plato. He was, he was talking about how, you know, Plato's notion of the forms, this is all just wishful thinking, speculative thinking. And he, he was talking about someone who, who advanced, who was a skeptic of, of Plato. And he's like, he made like sort of psychoanalytical attacks. And he was like, oh, brilliant. Like, this is so persuasive. And I, I was thinking, I'm like, well, this is just, it's the same as Plato. He, I could just accuse him of psychoanalysis there's no proof that what he's saying about plato is true or his motivations yeah so yeah it's always the person with the unusual view who's got to um hold the onus <laughs> and they're the one who's going to be uh subject in in social reality to these uh psychologically reductive views oh you think something unusual well why do you think that <laughs> and of course it could be because it's true and i've seen the the reasons clearly for why it's true and you can't um but yeah we we can't help it right when there's something unusual it strikes us as anomalous and we seek a special explanation for it and we're just not self-reflective enough usually to think well maybe i've got the special Maybe my whole society, actually, our default view is special in the sense that it's a deviation from the true. Gotcha. Yep. I 100% agree. Well, well said. Um, all right. Perfect. So, so I want to move on at this point. So I'm, this, I'm just going to keep very generalized. It, it's going to be up to you as to to what you want to mention. But can you maybe describe? Okay. So outside of these two specific explanations you wanted to discuss, what, what are some other naturalistic explanations. I know you, you've hinted at some along the way, but um, yeah, like biological explanations. You, you mentioned Marxism there. Um, yeah, what I, th are I think, um, yeah, we, we talked a bit about the Marxist view. I, I, um, I guess we haven't talked much about uh, what, what seems to be an increasingly powerful way of explaining so many things, which is the Darwinian 
mode. So in, in the Darwinian mode, we, we, we think of humans as an animal, as an evolved animal. And then, you know, with our sort of alien, alien spectacles on, we observe this interest, very interesting animal on Earth. And we notice that, oh, I don't know, sometime over the last several thousands or tens of thousands of years, this phenomenon we'll vaguely call religion has emerged, the special form of behavior, with its associated very visible, very not vague behaviors like building mosques and um, bathing in rivers. And th these behaviors call out for an explanation. And from the Darwinian angle, you know, when an animal expends a lot of energy on a behavior, we've got to ask, what is it for? With, with this guiding presumption that very wasteful, like energetically wasteful behaviors would be weeded out in evolutionary history and so if, if the human animal is expending a lot of its cultural energy i mean think of the amount of cultural energy used to build a pyramid or a cathedral or to take hajj in the year 1320 to take hajj um if you're living in egypt um this is a lot of energy we're expending to fulfill a religious goal and the biologist quite appropriately asks well what what is the possible function here that is how does um how does this religious behavior assist the animal in this is crass but in the end it's got to be reproduction some some form of reproduction of the individual or the species form um not again it, it won't be crude in the in, in in that all religious behavior is ultimately just one step removed from you know trying to get laid or something like that it's just it's but reproduction that, that the, the reproduction of the culture and the life in it um, is somehow served by religious behavior so that that would be the guiding problem for the biolog biological orientation to religion right that we expend a lot of energy and the question is why what purpose does this expenditure serve and then you get you get different answers i i i think um uh you know uh um what, what seems to be a fairly common answer is that is that uh religion generally helps us cohere socially and uh, we are a hyper social animal and our individual survival depends on a high degree of social cohesion initially with our mother and then branching out to the tribe and so on and 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 i guess the trick is we have some natural propensities including self-reflectiveness and a high degree of autonomy and desire for autonomy which might conflict with that we have this ability to to lie <laughs> you know we can lie to those we're supposed to be connecting with and create these disruptions in the social fabric for individual advancement and so so the, you know the great social problem in general is working out this relationship between individual and social um, ambition i guess and religion would be part of that solution religion would be a way that nature gets us to play well with each other um, um and it it suppresses or mitigates some tendencies or powers we have to really operate outside the social fabric so um you know um
take the idea of God as a kind of universal pol- policeman. If if you could get people to believe that such a being exists and that the being is advocating rules, demanding we follow rules that in the end turn out to be good for social cohesion, like don't steal and don't lie and honor your parents. Now, if you could just get people to believe such a being exists, then those people would be less likely to commit violations of those rules, even when they can get away with it. Like so for their individual benefit, they can get away with it. But... Maybe it's bad for the tribe that they get away with it, stealing or lying or whatever. And so religion is this great trick that no one invented it, but it emerged through cultural evolution over maybe many hundreds or dozens of generations, which which solves this this problem in this particularly self-conscious species. So that's one way of, of, of thinking about it. A, a more interesting counternote to that comes out in Daniel Dennett's work, um, um, right, right. He published a work on, on naturalistic explanations oh, around the turn of the millennium, I think it was, maybe around 2005. And what was the title of that, of that book? Do you remember the title of that one, Dale? Uh, I just, we used it in our course. but uh, break, Breaking the Spell. Break, breaking the Spell, that's right. Yeah. Um, in, in, he doesn't really have a thesis in that book, but he makes, he makes quite heavy use of these evolutionary and cog sci explanations of religion but but one view he asks the reader to hold in mind as we go down the darwinian path is that this idea that religion if it's a darwinian phenomenon must be for the good of our species is questionable because of course another darwinian phenomena is a virus right or um something another something which co-opts the reproductive machinery of its host for its own benefit it uses its host to get itself spread so according to dennett a chunk of a chunk of religion might be virus-like it might be something that actually isn't helping humanity it's more like a bad cold that humanity's had for many millennia now which inhibits our growth and health but it's good for religion <laughs> and if religion gets itself spread by taking advantage of our social nature our communicative nature it takes advantage of some of our fears and desires and gets itself spread in that way and so it's like this this meme it's this it's this very i think dennett would call it the most successful memeplex of cultural history religion ends up being the the winners of this of this vi- competition between viruses which take take us over and in whose service we then operate right when we go buy a box of kleenex it's it's for the cold in a way i mean it's 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 us it's something we're doing because we have the cold and it's it's combating the cold or dealing with its symptoms but it would be better not to have to buy the box of kleenex to begin with right and um so that's that's an, another interest like in the darwinian spectrum uh, you could think of religion as something that ultimately is helping humanity. So a lot of these Darwinian explainers, they're not necessarily as critical of religion as you might think. They often end up with a kind of healthy respect for religion in the same way that the zoologist might have a respect for the tiger's claws or the zebra's stripes or some other wonderful mechanism they've observed in the animal that helps it survive and reproduce. Um, but th- there's also this other Dennett angle of thinking of religion as something virus-like, something a little bit, something biological, but alien to humanity's own interests. 
Yeah, and I was kind of wondering, even from a, a, a strict exclusivist Christian sense, or if, if you're an exclusivist for any religion, uh, even taking someone like Daniel Dennett thing, there could be some partial truth to this. So it, it could be that God designed us with these religious impulses, and it's, it's actually good for us um, to have these. But maybe something's out of whack. We're not in that ideal state, and therefore it, it can take on a more negative virus-like role in some respects. But yeah. the underlying thing, it was good. It, it, it served a purpose, and it's been distorted in some way. Right, absolutely. I mean, if, if, we're, if we're thinking of religion as a meme, as a memeplex in the original Daw Dawkins sense of just a product of cultural evolution or a unit of cultural evolution, information as a unit of cultural evolution, which is what a meme is, uh, you know, memes can be false and memes can be true and memes can be devoid of truth function too, right? Like, um, um, the meme that two plus three equals five, I mean, you can print that and put it on a t-shirt. It's a meme. It's an idea that is communicated socially. It's a true, true meme. We've got this in the internet age. We think of memes as being particularly virulent, often false info. But in, in the biological definition, a meme is, is just something which is spreading through cultural exchange. And, it, and, you know, we're motivated by all kinds of things. One thing we're clearly motivated by is the desire to know what's true. We're, you know, we, and not just for pragmatic purposes. I think often our desire for truth is interestingly disconnected from that. And that's where philosophy per se begins, right? I mean, the love of truth or wisdom itself. And, and um, so, so one, if we're, if we're a philosophical species, some, some of us more than others, but if we're a philosophical species, then one thing, one factor, which is going to be driving mimetic exchange in human history is our desire for truth. So one thing it will be good for a meme to possess, among other things, is truth. It's something which could get a meme spread. Of course, thinking just pragmatically, the truth is very useful. It's very useful to have a correct map of your environment. And our beliefs sort of coalesce into a map of our environment, social and natural environment. And it's very good. You know, an individual who has a correct map of their environment is going to reproduce better than one who has a faulty map um, often. So, uh, yeah, even if, like, like we've seen today in so many cases, you can go pretty far down the naturalist path, even into this idea of religion as, it's not a virus, a memeplex, and still ask at the end of it, yeah, but is it true? <laughs> you know, yeah, um, clearly there's projection going on in religion. Clearly there's um, the, uh, uh, you know, reproduction of class division in religious practice. Clearly, uh, religion functions as this kind of successful meme. You can think of very fruitfully of Christianity as being the most successful memeplex in human history, at least in the history of the book. But um, at the end of it all, we can still ask, yeah, and, and to what extent is it true? And does God still exist? <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> perfect. Yeah, so... All right. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased with uh, how this is going. I think we're getting a lot of great ideas out there. Um, the next question. So we, you've already, we've already ans been answering this throughout the whole time. Um, so I'm gonna, okay, I'm gonna switch it up then. So, so I get that you uh, and I as well believe that 
there can be multiple explanations and they're not all necessarily mutually exclusive. There, there can be partial truth um, to them. Do you, let me ask you this, do you think that there are any explanations that that are outright faults that don't play a role in, in explaining religion in some way or? Huh. Yeah. Um, none that I've encountered that I can think of off the bat. Now, all the ones that kind of hover around in my mental space over the years have some kind of plausibility. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 really just the, the ridiculously reductivist, simplistic, generalizing naturalist explanations that are clearly false to me, right, that I react against. And they're, they're quite common out there, like these caricatures of religious explanation are out there. They're quite common. Um, there are a lot of atheists who are pretty sure that religion is just all wish fulfillment, that it's just all people scared of death or something and running away from the cold fact of death that they, the naturalist, have dealt with by the age of 23. And and that stuff is just clearly, it's dumb in that it's it, it hasn't, it's just not sensitive to the data that's out there. A nice thing about Feuerbach, I should mention, is, I mean, I think if you if you read a chapter or two from the essence of Christianity or his lectures on on religion, you'll see this is a guy who knows these religions a bit from the inside more than I get the sense Dawkins does. I mean, Dawkins can quote some chap some of his favorite chapter and verse to show what a monster Yahweh is. And um, but I get the sense I, 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 I don't know Dawkins, but I get the sense he's got kind of a typical um, English public school boys <laughs> understanding of religion, beginning with some kind of state Anglicanism and an understandable maybe a distaste for that. And then that expands out into his picture of religion more generally. You read Feuerbach and, and you're dealing with someone who's got a pretty sensitive grasp on the data and is, is doing his best to account for the depth of religious experience. Right. And um, I think there's something similar going on in Julian Jaynes, where, I mean, in the end, I, I think Julian Jaynes is some kind of atheist, and he doesn't think our, the voices were from anything transcendent. But, but he, he's got this kind of healthy respect for the weirdness and the depth of religious experience. He, in a way, his whole, his whole life's work is motivated by an encounter with, with the profundity of this experience. He's recognizing more than the typical English scholar of the or lit literature scholar of the Iliad that there's a really different psychology operating in this ancient mentality. You know, he's, he's respecting that something alien is is operating here. Now that alienness for him is not God. It's something on the realm of human pathological psychology, but but again, again, in, in the better naturalistic expl explainers, you find they are respecting the depth and the variety of the data and trying to account for it. And, and but you do find out there in a lot of trickle down, you know, popular naturalist explanation, just these ridiculously reductivist views, which are coming from people who clearly it's like they haven't actually had any kind of religious experience. And uh, they're, they're talking about something they don't they don't know. Very simplistic, the totalizing tendency. Yes. Oh, yeah. All right. All right. Well, before, I know you were really excited about the last the last question. Um, is there anything that uh, you think is important about the explanations of religion that I didn't ask about or, or that you would like to, to uh, talk about for the audience? 
Oh, boy. You know, there's something interesting going on in, in Feuerbach um, worth, worth dwelling on. Um, when you, I mean, at the heart of Feuerbach's explanation is this kind of equation. And it's supposed to be a shocking revelation that God is man. <laughs> right. God is man. Um, but if it's an equation, <laughs> it, it goes both ways, right? So, uh, and, and this, this is going to take us outside of Orthodox Christian, you know, um, that's fine uh, theory, but, but into something a little more maybe Vedantic or monistic, but if, if what you're seeing at the heart of religious experience is some kind of equation of man with God, you have to then be open to the possibility that what you're actually witnessing there is the divinity of the human and not the anthropomorphizing of the divine. Right? When you say man equals God, the question then is, are you saying that we are really gods? <laughs> or yeah. are you saying God is just a man? The, the equal sign it, it itself doesn't have the word just in it, right? <laughs> so the equal sign is it's, it's bi, bi-directional. And so there's it's 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 there's that yeah when you go down that route when you're sensing some kind of equation of God to man you you got to take pause and ask you know what am I seeing here is it that this idea of God is just the all too human or is it that there's something divine in us and actually we can bring it to more familiarly Christian terms if you just think about I mean you don't have to think about humans literally being being god but you can think about humans being made in the descendant of the divine and we have the divine in us and that's our 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 essence is that relationship and our ultimate destiny is to be in a very intimate relationship with that just because you're sensing something human in in our talk about the divine you know doesn't mean that you're you're well on your way to showing that religion after all just as humanist projection right so that's it's it's a uh, you know that's and i'm not sure how sensitive feuerbach was to this but um the implications but, there. yeah when i when i read feuerbach you know back in grad school and i was coming i, ha- I had a bit of the vedantic influence operating quite strongly in my worldview at that time and that that question became quite apparent to me that it's hovering there over that over that text excellent all right all right so yeah i'm gonna turn it to the to the last question uh, again i know you're you're really excited about this one so um i remember i always remember i had um i don't know do you know who anthony magna bosco is no okay he's uh, so he's an atheist but um he, he's known as a, a kind type atheist and he, he engages in what's called street epistemology oh uh, it's invented by Peter Bogosian and that, but you know he he goes out and he actually talks on the street with people and he asks you know he films this on his YouTube channel and he just says you know what's something you believe and whatever it is do you believe in ghosts or an afterlife or God or or whatever you believe and just let's have a talk about why you believe what you believe and mm-hmm. uh, we actually had him on our show um, interviewing him and. He, so um, we did sort of like a mock thing. So he asked me, he 
he went through his procedure with me, and he also went through it with my atheist co-host, uh, David Johnson. And his be- his belief, David Johnson's belief, uh, that they went back and forth on was religion is bad for humanity. Uh, it, the world would be better if we just eliminated religion altogether. So I wanted to turn it to you and sort of, regardless, whatever the explanation or explanations, plural, of religion are, uh, what do you make of this religious phenomenon? Has, in your opinion, do you think it's been an overall positive thing that's good <laughs> or an overall negative thing? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I guess I, I do like the question in the sense that you can't help but wonder about it and it's, you can't help but propose an answer, you know, if, if only speculatively. But uh, on the other hand, it just seems so impossible to uh, to answer. It's... Uh, it's like I, I find it harder. I find it more um, presumptuous almost to try to answer that question than the question of whether there's a God. The question of whether there's a God seems almost simpler than this really complicated counterfactual question about on the ground uh, social psychological history, you know. Uh, but but having said that, of course, it is fun to talk about that. That's probably why I was looking forward to it. Can't help but wonder. And uh, um, yeah. I, I tend to have this view these days. I, I, things feel so apocalyptic to me that I, I tend to think about so many good things that enter our world and turn bad and fall short of their promise. And uh, think I, I think of religion that way too, you know, as 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 indicative of some kind of encounter between us and something often quite good, which then gets co-opted by other ends and powers um but i also i also think i mean if religion is defined broadly to be something like you know the organization of our contact with the transcendent or something like that and we're not strictly strictly monotheist meaning meaning i mean most monotheists actually admit of a large range of entities between the human and and the highest, right? They're angels and archangels and demons and devils. And if if, if your cosmology admits of that that richness, then then probably your your picture of religious history will include contact with some of those other entities too, right? So the history of religion. I mean, clearly in the biblical account, we're being given a history of contact not just with Yahweh, but with angels and other entities including demonic so one way religion may have been bad religion may have been bad is because it's been through demonic contact that that a lot of religions which end up taking power in our world are quite quite demonic and so i I hope i don't offend anyone out there but when when i when i look at the ancient institution of animal sacrifice i mean go back far enough and it included human sacrifice. But when that was mitigated or softened into mass animal sacrifice, I don't know, when I when I see that blood rolling at the temple, I I feel we're close to something a little bit demonic. Uh, like a, a, a God who's demanding that for a sign of your allegiance or demanding that in some kind of economy of exchange. For the gifts he will then bestow upon you that that has the mark of the demonic to me so 
I, I think the religion of the capital T temple and the religion of the capital S state and the, you know, the religion that is, that really is closely aligned with the major powers of our world, which have been making war and degrading our ecology for 10,000 years. I'm very skeptical of these traditions. So I think like a lot of good things, you know, including the idea of democracy and what have you, I mean, these things get degraded and twisted and used for ends that are evil. So clearly a lot of what's gone on in the history of religion uh, is bad. And some of that badness is just all too human badness. And some of that badness is humans, I think, influenced by something quite quite demonic, which wants to eat our world. I think there's something which can benefit energetically from eating life and degrading it into its entropic waste and feeding on that. And that's that's the demonic. And I think humans have been in allegiance with that thing. Um, and a lot of big religion is in allegiance with that thing. So, yeah, my answer is a little bit... I guess, obviously, veering to the negative that I, when I look at human history and, I, and when I look at the apocalyptic endgame we've we've arrived at, if if only ecologically. I mean, there are other angles you can look at it, but we're destroying our world. And you've got to ask, well, what has been driving that? And I just see a lot of religious ideology and practice being woven into that destructive process. So, yeah. how about you? What do you, what do you what's your overall view? Um, yeah, so I, I, I think obviously as a Christian, religion has been overall and will be overall positive um, because uh, and it's not even necessarily just looking at this uh, state that we're in today. There's also the end state. It's, it's the whole kit and caboodle type thing, right? So in the end, God is going to redeem creation. Everything that's bad is going to be made right in one way or the other. Um, even even if you believe so yeah even if you believe in in hell i i don't believe in a, a torture chamber model of hell I, I think the people in hell will be happy to exist in that state it's it's more about separation from god hey you've got the choice in this life kind of thing so even all all things considered i, I would definitely say religion is oh right now oh okay but i i think i got you i got your point yeah. Um, but but I do think, yeah, I was going to say, I do think that you make an interesting point in terms of your view that, so maybe looking at religion in its pure form on an individual level, you think that's good overall, but it's it's once it, it gets corrupted at an institutional level, that's where you're, you, you kind of lean in the net negative direction. Um, uh... Yeah. The, I'm not sure if I draw the distinction quite that way. I think I think at the individual level it gets twisted too. Definitely would would make the distinction generally between the non-twisted and the twisted revelation. But I think very often at the individual level it gets tw oh, sorry. all these. Sorry. Oh, sorry. No, you you cut out. So I, sorry. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you see it get twisted at the individual level, often by the people who are closest to the revelatory stream, you know, people who are receiving that in a really high radioactive dose, they, uh, they quickly, it quickly turns toxic, and they, they become egomaniacs. You can see how that would happen, you know, these, these gurus who are convinced that they are the highest incarnation of God on Earth, some of them are just 
liars. I mean, they're just pure charlatans who just just know that they can play that role and reap social benefit from it. But some of them are just interpreting incorrectly this powerful experience, mystical experience they've had in 1963 or 1982 or 1822. And and it's so powerful that attempting interpretation of it is I am God and and creation should be worshiping me. And um, so I think, you know, this thing can get twisted very quickly at the individual level, too. And a lot of the later social twisting maybe comes from the powerful narcissism that is built into the initial prophetic reception of it uh, in, in some in some cases. Yeah, it's just, yeah. yeah, that's that's interesting for I'm, I'm thinking of my view as well. Like, so just looking at this current state, for, forget about the final state, uh, has it overall the, the vast majority of religious belief from a Christian perspective is, well, these are, are faults. So has that been a, a net positive or net negative to to have false beliefs and that sort of thing and, and beliefs lead to, uh, to actions? So yeah it's that's something i would need to to think about um obviously some some christians my, my pastor for example you probably heard oh christianity is not a religion so so i you could kind of say religions are all bad um but christianity isn't a religion. you know I, that's just playing semantics in my view yeah 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 um i here i am asking you a question and i don't have a good answer on my own end um so is is the question um whether a, a way to explain these uh, twisted receptions just to think of them as false false revelations or false false religions yeah it's i tend to think so so obviously in anyone in any religion there, there are truths uh in any religion but it's the at the end of the day they, they are false only christianity is the true divine revelation that is going to get you where you're going so that that's sort of summarized in, in jesus statement i am the way the truth and the life um I, I don't think you can follow like another religious path and achieve the, the same end or something like that so you know that that's in that way I, I would see other religions as sort of being a negative even though there are some good things in it um so yeah i, I guess if we're looking at religions yeah, that, that would be my answer is to look at it, look at stand back and look at it from the perspective of everything, all things considered as a Christian, everything will be made, will be redeemed, everything that's gone wonky will will be back where it is. And, and even the worst parts, the people that do not choose a state of salvation, they, they will be where they want to be. It, it's not, you know, we think of I think people have sort of a misunderstanding of exactly what hell is. It, it's not going to be pleasant. I mean, it, it's not a place you should want to go. You're not designed to be in that place. You're designed to have a real eternal relationship with God and, and other people in, in a sinless environment and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, I would sort of stand back and look at the total picture. And on that front, unequivocally, yeah, re- religion has overall been positive. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a bit more about Jesus? Sure. I'd, like, I'd love to. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, uh, sure. So um, in terms of his a, f- a favorite topic, but um, I just I I you know to push back a bit against your sure. um, your Christology. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I, and I'm going to do it by actually staying with the assumption that Jesus was the incarnation of, of the highest. Okay. Right. Like let's, let's take that as one of our working assumptions. Okay. Um, it doesn't follow that he would have completely correct and lucid beliefs and that everything he said would be in some literal way correct. I don't, I don't think so. I think there's a way you can think about like the epistemology of Jesus, the epistemology of the incarnation and the, the experience of that entity which allows for some of the degradations or compromises of incarnation. So, I mean, incarnation literally means coming into a body. And we accept that means coming into limitations. That's part of the great sacrifice. I think prior to the, I mean, the idea that the great sacrifice is that he was hung on a cross for a few hours. I mean, I, I, I find this idea a little bit ludicrous in that, Anyone who's been on earth for 30 or 40 or 50 years suffers bodily and mentally. And I mean, this is this is going to sound a little bit crass maybe to, to Christian ears, but by the standards of crucifixion, from what we can tell, Jesus had a pretty, pretty easy crucifixion. I mean, often they would be hanging out there for days with wild dogs gnawing off their feet. And I mean, he, he went pretty, pretty well. So, so this is all just toward my point that Again, if we accept the, the notion that there was some great sacrifice in God incarnating into the world, I don't think we should fixate on the crucifixion as the site of that. The, I think as philosophers, we should think a little more fundamentally than that and think about the, the, the basic ontological situation of the divine entering into creation. That's the sacrifice. It's there from birth. It's the, it's the infinite taking on form which then implies limitations. As soon as you take on form, you've got limitations. And we're, we, you know, we mitigate this. So we, we say, yes, but Jesus is divine. And that's partly reflected in the powers of the miracles. The, the miracles show that though I am limited to this body and to the laws of nature in, or seem to be, I can at any point overstep them or, you know, trump them with my divine power. Um, but you might, might also think, about the belief system of an incarnated God, right? First of all, think developmentally. Would this being know from birth with perfect lucid self-awareness that it is God? Or would this be, uh, I mean, a more interesting story, like a superhero origin story, is the idea that this self-awareness that I am the deity evolves, maybe with adolescence, maybe with encounters with, you know, the, um, um, the book of Isaiah, he starts to realize I fit this the DNA of the Messiah pretty well. This is kind of uncanny, and this he starts to he comes to this wonderful process of self-realization that he is he is that thing that has been worshipped. It so that I mean that's that's an inter, at least an interesting idea, and it implies limitations. It implies that at one point in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, he didn't know he was God, and then he came to know it, and the climax is in his encounter with John. The Baptist, John, there he gets a kind of social, you know, there's a social epistemology of mutual confirmation. Who am I? Who are you? Okay, are we thinking the same thing here? Okay, it's confirmed, right? He, he, he goes to the one who next to him would most know, most be able to tell. And he gets a confirmation that this thing I'm thinking is correct. And 
So this is just an interesting way of thinking about Jesus's self-knowledge of what we're presuming here, which is that he is God incarnate. When you allow in that developmental lacuna of, of knowledge, you can also then maybe let in, even in his sort of fulfilled state, when he's come to, you know, developed into pretty full self-awareness of his divinity, there can be not incorrect statements necessarily, but very human, very touchingly human moments. And we see those in, in the Gospels. I mean, when he cries out asking, you know, in his final words, where are you? <laughs> where are he's? I mean, if we accept incarnation, then he's asking, where am I? Where I, that the divine nature has fled from my immediate grasp in these dying breaths. And um, so you can maybe see other moments like that. So when back to your, you know, I mean, if, if Jesus in, of Nazareth, in fact, said, I am the way. And if, if we look at the Aramaic and whatever, get through all the layers of semantics and translation and we can confirm in the depths of his psychology that he meant I am the only way to the highest, assuming all that, it may also be that he was over speaking and that he's still God. That, that again, it's hard for us to understand what it's like to be truly filled with divine nature. It might be that the human body and mind can only take so much of that. And it, it, it trips a little bit. It, it overstates the fact. It, it, when it tries to translate it into language or self-assertion, it comes out in hyperbole sometimes. So if, if, if let, let, I mean, in the Hindu view, God incarnates many times through history. Um, you know, and there are many avatars or incarnations of God. And it might still be that an individual incarnation feels that it is the only one. <laughs> that's that's the power of that feeling. The power of that feeling is the feeling maybe it just it just slides easily in the feeling that I am the only one. It's like uh, when people you know young young people fall in love, you know, and they fall in love for the first time. It's got this sense that it's yeah I. It's new. What we're experiencing is unlike <laughs> love that has ever been experienced hitherto in the history of mammalian mating. And it's objectively, it's a ridiculous view. Uh, but the power of that feeling of falling in love naturally generates this sort of egoic hyperbole. So what I'm saying is, even if you accept the view that Christ is divine, you might be able to, I'm not saying this is the way you're going to do it or be happy doing it, but you can let in some, something in the realm of error in the way he speaks. Just like you could allow, like if Jesus tripped a little bit once, picks up his sandals and he tripped a little bit, does that mean he's not God? No, it means he's God incarnate. He's got a body, a body which is partly now subject to all the vicissitudes and a comedy of physical existence. That's part of the beauty of the divine sacrifice and i'm just saying that sacrifice could have an epistemological dimension too and then you know then you can start to maybe reconcile some of those statements of jesus which are the go-to statements for the christian exclusivist you can start to interpret some of those statements in a more uh what's the word inclusivist um way yeah yeah all right well I guess just to first of all thank you so much for for being willing to kind of discuss Jesus specifically and that sort of thing. So yeah, I, I always appreciate that. And and these are doctrines that I've thought about. So just to sort of give you my take, if, if you don't mind, you're you're the guest. No, uh, no, absolutely. I'd love to love to hear what you think about all this. Cool. So so Paul, you you are 
so much more with it in terms of the doctrine of the incarnation than most um, skeptics that I interact with. Most of them think, well, Jesus was Superman on earth. It was kind of like a theophany in the Old Testament because God takes on human flesh in the same way Hindu gods in, in the Old Testament. But that's not an incarnation. The incarnation is he, he actually takes on the human nature itself and all the essential properties of the, the human nature. Uh, so yeah, he, he's limited. Um, he felt pain. He was he was genuinely tempted to sin and and these sorts right. of things, yeah. and and he was so so uh, the divine nature was still there, but it was sublimated, and right. that can include epistemol epistemologically. I'm I'm open that Jesus made an error. He he said the smallest seed is the mustard seed. Well assuming he meant that literally which is debatable but let's pretend he did i'm cool with that um yeah. but jesus could make an error on certain things ah yeah. like important theological truths like how to obtain salvation and th this would constitute what i call undue confusion and i don't think god the father could allow jesus in his human nature to make those types of errors so yeah like just to turn it um, what, what do you think of that? Like maybe Jesus could make certain errors, but there are other errors that he would be prevented from making errors on because they're so important that we get that he gets. Yeah, those. yeah, I, I like that idea. I guess uh, a couple thoughts in response. One is that uh, we don't want to sell humans too short on their capability to eventually, you know, in the grand sweep of. Um, redemptive history to to understand the complexity of that incarnation to understand something like the view i've been offering about about how jesus might even overspeak on these very christologically central um assertions and misspeaking isn't quite the right word in a way it's 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 funny right like strictly speaking um propositionally he may have been speaking a falsehood if, if indeed there are other ways, other incarnations say, and there are other ways uh, to get to God, um, apart from a, a particular relationship with Jesus, then, then strictly speaking, he's misspeaking when he says, "I am the only way." But in a, in another way, it's it's he he spoke perfectly appropriately, right? Which is that it's part of the evidence that you are a way to God, that you've got a special connection with it, that you're humming with that energy. And when you're humming with that energy, you'll tend to speak in this kind of extreme hy hyperbolic way. It's, 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 it's like the mark of the true guru is some of this true and what his particular path is. There's like some of the early signs should some kind of drama around like happening around this or around my relationship with it. That's it's just, it's a sign of energy. It's a sign of something important happening so the way somebody speaks too if they speak in a very music like a naturally musical or poetic way and these are all signs that there's something energetically interesting happening in that locus and and again if they speak in what is strictly speaking false hyperbole that too could could be a mark of appropriate linguistic expression of what they experience in their connection to the divine so so it's it's just, i know i'm just recapitulating my theory here but with the proviso with the addition that we should we should let that humans are pretty sophisticated philosophical creatures and 
it's not just you or me who will be able to understand this point. In fact, maybe philosophy explicates it very late and there are people who understand it in a more intuitive, unexplicated way very early on in their encounter with these beings. Um, um, but um, um, I, I said there were two things I had to respond to um, in that respect. I guess, what was the second one now? I yabbered on so long about the first one. Um, in any case, no, I, I like that distinction and that, I, indeed, if you want to maintain a kind of Christocentric view, uh, you know, that, that seems like the best strategy, logically, to start with. Uh, but uh, All right, and the second element you mentioned, so this is, a, again, an essential element of the gospel message is the crucifixion and, and Jesus' atoning death and, you know, the, the need for blood, um, you, you mentioned, is an issue for, for you. Now, believe it or not, tonight at seven o'clock, I'm going to be debating this very issue with. Uh, do, do you know um, David Smalley from Dogma Debates, or ah, uh, David Smalley from Dogma Smalley? He's he's more pop. He's not an academic or anything, but he's got a pretty big podcast. Um, he's an atheist and you know debates Christians. I don't Maybe, maybe not. That's not our David, eh? That's a different David, eh? It's a different David, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, I thought so. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think I know that name. Fair enough. Okay, uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll definitely send you the link, because we're going to be debating this, because a lot of people have problems with it. So what I would just say is sort of like a, a pushback, and then you, you can get the last word on that. But oh. So number one, believe it or not, um, I don't think Jesus did get off the hook. Um I think he experienced crucifixion like no other human uh, being yeah. in history because um, he didn't just experience, you, you've heard this, uh, he didn't just experience physical death, he also experienced spiritual death, which is uh -huh. which is the punishment, the proper punishment for sin. So, you know, when he's saying, God, God, why have you abandoned me? I think he was experiencing relational separation from God the Father, and, and that was... That's the worst uh, pain you can be through. Um, and in, in terms of, well, how does it make sense then? How, how, why is blood necessary? So, so blood is is symbolic of life, and it's a, it's kind of like a, a necessary consequence of having this sin disease. When you sin and take on sin, becomes incorporated into your character. The only way to purge that is through through paying the necessary consequence of that. It, it's just like having a, a disease and then there's necessary symptoms which come about through that. So it, it's it's non-negotiable on God's party. He has to, the punishment has to be paid in order for, you know, the principle of, of the moral principle of justice to be upheld. Um, but what I'm going to be discussing with David Smalley is, well, well, how does it make sense for somebody else to die in your place? Why that violates justice? You're punishing an innocent person, uh, and you're treating him as though he creates sins for me. And the way I kind of uh, reconcile this is, I take a consequentialist view. So there, there are beneficial consequences that result from punishing people and this is i think you, you i wrote to you about this so you know this already um that come about but one of those consequences is reforming the character of the sinner this would be why we would punish them jesus paying the the penalty and because he can supernaturally uh form a mystical union with us and, and affect our characters and therefore redeem our characters 
therefore that we can obtain the beneficial consequence even though without us undergoing that punishment and i think that's what justifies um penal substitution in that case and and it also explains you know why why is it necessary why can't god just forgive us no there's this element of there are necessary consequences of having sin that are non-negotiable jesus pays that for us and then the the beneficial consequences justifying that punishment can be attributed to us through this mystical union when he dwells in our hearts um yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that, that makes um, sense. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. I, I don't know if I would today take issue with that that particular aspect of, um, you know, the, the the relation of the Christian to to Christ. Um, it does seem pretty complicated to the outsider, and I like to think God operates in a simple way like I, I like your vision of hell because it's it's simple and it, it, it does strike me as the way god would engineer it god wouldn't need to engineer add on extra punishments <laughs> and send you to that place if you've been a sinner the the punishment is implicit in the form of sin itself the the sin and the punishment become almost united that's efficient design and that's what we'd expect from a super genius like god um simplicity of the punishment is that your form of life is the punishment itself your alienation from god and you're choosing to be so alienated, that is that is hell. Um, so I, I like to think God operates simply and, and you know, maybe without, I don't even know the details enough of the, the blood, the blood sacrifice and redemption to debate it intelligent, intelligibly with you. But um, um, it does strike me like a lot of outsiders as being pretty prolix, you know, and uh, you would say mediated and relational and that's okay that's fun i guess i um about about the idea you know the idea of, uh, about christ's suffering on the cross that it included this extra suffering of um i recognize we're well outside our prescribed topic but i'm having fun if you are so same here um, yeah yeah um and i don't want to i don't want to waste your uh waste your vocal power too much if you got this debate tonight so so uh you can feel free to cut us off at any time if you got to get ready but um um I would just say about about that. It's it's an interesting point, and I I, I I I do accept this that that there could be something very special in the way Christ suffered on the cross, which is just it's infinite, and it 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 outweighs <laughs> if you want to do the utilitarian calculus all the creaturely suffering of all crucifixions, past and present, and other punishments and sufferings. That's of course possible and fitting of the picture of who he is. Um. But then you could also ask, well, I don't know what what is worse to have been super rich and then lost all your money, oh poor you, <laughs> or to have been poor from birth uh, to the to the grave. So we're we're like that. We're poor. We're poor. We're alienated from God through our lives, and hopefully at the end, afterwards are reunited. Christ in the picture you're painting, Christ has this divinity, this this connection to the divinity on earth. And then loses it in his final moments on the cross, and that fleeing is is going to be especially painful. But again, it's this is a really terrible analogy or offensive analogy, maybe. But of course, the pain of um, of quitting heroin cold turkey is especially painful. Apparently, it's a you know a exquisite discomfort 
which most of us would have a hard time imagining. But of course, most of us would have a hard time imagining the pleasure of the, the first heroin shoot up too, if we haven't done it. And apparently that's pretty great too. That's, you know, and so it, again, this, this, if, if we're trying to say Christ suffered specially, I, you know, I want to counter a little bit with the notion that, well, at least he enjoyed divinity for 33 years and then it fled. Uh, we, we don't get it at all. Um, typically we get glimpses of it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Okay, so all right, well that that's actually helpful to me. So thank you for helping me to to prepare against uh, David Smalley there. Because oh, is that right? Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. It's uh, it's in. I think you raise an interesting point, a perspective of well, there's this. It's it's a complicated scheme, and there's very there's various ad hoc components. So if, if we have an overriding thing that well, God must be simplistic uh, or operates simplistically you know, Occam's razor, right? Um, then perhaps that's a reason to that a skeptic could g- try to give to discount um, my my defeater or my explanation of, of this skeptical argument. So, yeah, that, that's a thoughtful yeah. thing to consider. Um, uh, yeah. You know, when, when Jesus says, I am the way, I, it's, it's, it's one of these mantra-like gnomic assertions. I mean, it seems so clear. And... Uh, you know, one way to interpret that is you got to follow me. And I'm I, I'm through the partly through this mechanism we're describing now of um, transference and mediation. I am the way to redemption. But I don't know. That just seems there's a lot that's been loaded on there. My sense is there's a lot that's been loaded onto that statement. And it might be one of those statements which, if he uttered it, was misinterpreted the minute it came out of his mouth. In any case, there are just so many things it could mean. You know, it could mean something like. I think a more Gnostic sense of what that would mean is I am the way, meaning you've got to do like I did. You know, you've got to go into the desert and break a little bit free. I mean, be, 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 be a recognizable output of your tradition, just like he was a recognizable um, version of the Messiah prophecy being fulfilled. But also got to go into the desert away from all these structures of civilization including its belief structures and encounter something in its primal form and then you come back from that encounter come down from the mountain come back from the desert and you speak these assertions which are so weighted with that experience they're just bound to be twisted and misinterpreted so i am the way can mean so many things and i just think we need to be whatever we end up interpreting it as we need to be a little bit humble in recognizing it could mean something very different from what we we think it means, and then think, you know put the Marxist hat on a little bit, not just Marxist specifically, but be a little bit skeptical of the great secular powers of the world that have happily adopted this Christology, and you've got to wonder a little bit about you know qui bono there, like why is it to their benefit to adopt this very exclusivist view of salvation? So you know. Um, I don't know what to think about it, but there's 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 lots of reason to be skeptical about it, even if you're basically Christological in your orientation. Sort of a sort of a moral influence theory of, of the atonement or redemption that that you're sort of giving with the Gnostics there, but yeah, like it's, I would I would just say again, it's it's not fair to challenge you because I, I, you're not a historian or, or into biblical scholarship or that sort of thing. But I would just say that 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 view can't speaking as a historian or something that view can't be true we we do know enough about 
the context of, of Jesus' words, uh, and it, it is so. It's you know, it's in the context of his mission, which includes dying on the cross, shedding his blood for our sins. And given there are numerous passages in the Old Testament, you know, things like Leviticus 17 verses 11, I think it is that that stress. Look, that the only way to be saved is through the shedding of blood, and and that is a symbol of you know the necessary consequence of sin which is losing your life and you know and a, a yeah. like also sounds a lot like what a demon would say you know hey guys uh blood the spilling of blood equals life and um it's a sign of life and it's a sign of redemption mm-hmm. um when actually it's um a mechanism of brutal cross-species domination and um mechanism of ecological destruction and the death of empathy and the death of the self and the death of connection to what's good so it could be uh, if we want to be a little bit like a little bit more radical about this epistemology of jesus's self-knowledge you could say maybe he was he was really i mean he's god but he's he's, he's really incarnated into the local culture including some of its slightly demonic views about about how redemption works and it's part of the part of the work of salvation is translating the words of the guru or the god and um yeah you know. um, but as, that's that's probably not even <laughs> i don't even know if well you know actually that is a very uh I, I do identify a little bit more with the gnostics you know if i have to pick a school of christianity and they they often will have this view that yahweh is at least in places some kind of imposter god and the um and the rituals he's uh prescribed are not good and the logic of redemption that he's been selling has been twisted and it's it's at least interesting it's interesting to think of jesus himself being subject to this relationship this like by the time he gets on earth he's got a relationship with this <laughs> twisting of the divine self that he is uh, refracted through this particular herding culture, right? Yeah. That's interesting. That's that's a very that's a very human humanized Jesus, um, and I, I like that guy. I like that. I can I can let into my Christology a lot of errors, um, and uh, that's part of the beauty of the, and part of the sacrifice of the incarnation. That it includes great <laughs> sacrifice, including entering into confusion, like you said, sin. Well, how much confusion? Well, maybe confusion even to the point of starting to align with a slightly demonic twisting of the divine image. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. It's uh, been a great, great discussion. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I also like the bit at the end where I got to jump out of neutral host mode and kind of oh yeah no yeah please no as as always uh, you're such a such a great mediator speaking of mediation um uh, of course you were back in the in the classroom where you were very early on a co-teacher of the course and uh, you're really really wonderful um person to talk to about these things so anyway good luck tonight and uh yeah we'll talk again sometime soon i'm sure absolutely yeah perfect uh yeah so thank you thank you thanks again to paul for this i I hope that the audience 
enjoyed and and, and learned from this. Um, it, it's always a pleasure ha having you on there, Paul. Um, so, so yeah, I guess the the audience already knows. After Paul's show, I'll, I'll be posting up the David Smalley show um, a few days afterwards. Um, and yeah, look look forward to that on on the issue of the atonement and. Have a have a great week, everyone.